Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. In 1888, Whitechapel was gripped by the fear of a brutal series of murders perpetrated by a sadistic killer that named himself Jack the Ripper. He would go on to be one of the world's most famous and elusive serial killers of all time. Jack's escapades took place just a single step ahead of the curve of criminal forensics, an opportune window in time aiding him in his fight from capture. Across the channel, just a decade later, Another, less well-known nightmare was stalking the countryside. No less brutal in his killing spree, Vache the Ripper was tearing up victims in secluded forest pathways and the deserted barns of isolated rural communities across France. The march of science, psychology and criminology had not been standing still, however, and what were only the nuclei of ideas during Jack's reign were emerging as fully-fledged methodologies developed to pull a criminal from the shadows or a brutal murder out from under the shroud of speculation. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dark Histories, Season 4, Episode 4. Today, we have got an episode, and I tell you what, I don't really give kind of like warnings and such. I mean, we're all adults. This is a podcast called Dark Histories. But it's been a while since we've done an episode that features, I suppose, a character as depraved as we're going to see today. So there we go. Full warning for you. I say we're all adults. We all know what we're getting into here. Um, And I hope by now I've kind of proven to you that I don't write gratuitously. So, you know, with that said, today's episode is huge. New patrons to this episode are Lau, Hayden, Glenn, Far, Sean, Emily, Brent, Jai, Kirsty, Colin, Lauren, Manda, Chris, Caden, Kathy, and Jeremy. Thank you very much. It's greatly appreciated. I hope you can hear there might be a slight improvement to my voice. I upgraded a piece of my equipment and that's purely down to the patron. Basically, ever since about midway through last season, the podcast has been in the black. So I've been squirreling away pieces here and there from month to month and enough to kind of save up and start kind of upgrading my equipment one step at a time. Uh, it's been quite a slow process, but that's okay. And I'm down to the very last piece now. So I've got one final piece of the puzzle and that's going to be a new microphone. So yeah, um, hopefully my voice will be much improved. And that's all thank you to the patrons who not only are now keeping the podcast running, they're helping me to improve it, which is incredible. So 
Thank you very much. As always, your your support is is greatly appreciated. So anyway, let's let's get on with this. It's going to be a really big episode. So let's get into it. This is the story of Joseph Vache, the French Ripper. France in 1890 was square in the middle of a period of peace and prosperity. La Belle Epoque, or the Beautiful Epoch, was an era characterised by the optimism of the French people. Music, literature and the visual arts flourished. Gorgon, Rousseau, Toulouse-Lautrec, Rodin and a young Picasso emerged into the Paris art world with their brand of modern post-impressionistic masterpieces whilst Debussy, Ravel and Sarti composed pieces of music still familiar in almost every household today. The optimism and confidence of the nation was indelibly marked by the eclectic, bold, modern and oftentimes surreal nature of the output across all of the arts. In science and technology, germ theory became further established as Louis Pasteur pioneered with pasteurisation and immunology and vaccination research. Radio telegraphy spread across the country, allowing for quicker, wireless communication. Steps were being taken into the strange world of cinematography, whilst electric lighting became increasingly common, superseding gas in every city. The fashionable district of Montmartre saw the opening of the Moulin Rouge in 1889, the same year as the construction of the Eiffel Tower, built as an opening arch to welcome national and international visitors to the World's Fair which Paris hosted that year. This period of joie de vivre enjoyed by the growing middle class was not the reality for all, however, and one less celebrated aspect of the late 19th century in France was the stark contrast between the flourishing wealth of culture, learning, politics and economy in the cities, a growing, violent anarchist movement, and the disconnected rural farmlands of the countryside that still held dear old superstitions and whose precarious economies fell only further and further behind. Entire communities were finding themselves increasingly isolated as telegraphy connections spread slowly and electricity even slower. Whilst the well-off bourgeois in Paris feasted themselves figuratively and literally, the peasant farmers of rural France lived on a pittance entirely at the mercy of a single poor season that could ravage an entire community. Security was largely supplied by the self-policing of close-knit communities backed up by the authorities who were thinly spread and operating entirely independent of one another according to jurisdiction. Oftentimes, all it took for a criminal to evade capture would be no more than a short walk to the next town where anonymity prospered beneath a shroud of official ignorance for their neighbours. And the French countryside of the 1890s saw no shortage of walkers. Throughout the late 19th century, the phenomenon of vagabondage had been growing. A vast group of misfits, beggars, vagrants and nomads took to the trails, migrating with the harvests, working their way through the south of France into winter and then back north as the temperatures rose and temporary work helping with the harvests in the farms responded. By the mid-1890s, their number sat around 400,000, roughly 1% of the French population. This rise in the vagabonds also came hand in hand with the growing fear of rapidly ballooning crime rate, though some argued that this had more to do with the rise in tabloid newspapers reporting more widely due to ease in communication 
whilst others began to fear the other. Quickly, the vagabonds that lived on their own terms began to be seen as less of a helpful temporary workforce during the tight harvest periods and more of a threat to stability in society. They became likened to pack animals and seen as an early evolution of humans less inclined to live like modern, civilised people. This stigma was not at all helped by the fact that many of their number were often mentally or physically ill, released from packed mental asylums with little clue on their next step in life and no one to offer much in the way of assistance. They were the homeless and the disenchanted and they were increasingly a force to be feared. Though many found them agreeable, work, food and a place to stay was increasingly offered with more than a slight pang of hesitation and suspicion. One man who found himself rolling together with this wandering group of nomads was named Joseph Vache. In Vache's case, however, the rural people of France had very much to fear. Joseph Vache, blessed by God, was not a man that one would wish to meet on a dark path meandering through the thick trees of a southern French forest, winding between vast shards of granite that stuck out from the tips of the trees, piercing the murky skies and towering over the scattered, wiry fields. Born in 1869, Joseph Vache was the 15th child of Pierre and Marie Rose Vache, a middling peasant farming family living in Beaufort in the region of Isère in the southeast of France perched to the south of Lyon, at the foot of the French Alps. It's a diverse region with vast lakes, forested valleys and mountainous peaks. Joseph's birth had been troublesome for his mother and was noted by the arrival of his twin sister, who sadly failed to live past infancy and who died when she was only aged eight months old, choking on a ball of bread. The village of Beaufort, situated in the western region of Isère, was surrounded by large, flat fields and swathes of farmland which Vasha's family worked on, herding cattle and raking out a piteous existence that, like many, lay in stark contrast to the well-publicised lifestyles of the city dwellers of La Belle Epoque. Life was challenging in the fields for the farmers, and many rural French had grown a steadfast reputation as being both a hardy and determined people. The Vasha family may have been large, but both parents and all the children lived in a single-roomed brick house that bordered a small patch of land upon which they grew what little crops they could and housed their cattle. At the age of five, Joseph was bitten by a stray dog and treated with a rabies vaccination, an outcome that would prove to traumatise him for the entirety of his life. Marie Rose was 15 years younger than her husband Pierre, though he outlived her by some margin after she passed away abruptly in 1883 when Joseph was just 14 years old. Already a troublesome child, his father found him difficult to deal with. He had once taken the cattle out to pasture and passed the time in the field by choosing to experiment with breaking several of the cow's legs. One year after his mother's death, he was passed into the care of the monks of Saint-Genis-Laval, a monastery 100 miles to the east of Beaufort, on the southern outskirts of Lyon. Here he was to attend a strict Catholic schooling. Joseph had grown up fiercely religious already and he had shown signs of his devotion to Catholicism from an early age. When he was 10 years old, on a school trip, he gave an impromptu sermon whilst visiting a church. This upbringing served him well during his time at the monastery 
and the strict Catholic teachings didn't faze him at all. Instead, he found that he had a keen enjoyment of writing and gained an education that he may otherwise have never been afforded back in Beaufort. It wasn't to last, however, and at the age of 17, he was thrown out for conducting inappropriate sexual acts with other pupils. He spent the next years drifting between odd jobs, sleeping with prostitutes and contracting various venereal diseases, one of which eventually led to a partial castration when his left testicle became infected and had to be partially removed. In 1892, 23-year-old Joseph Vache was drafted into the army under compulsory conscription and served in the 60th Regiment in Besançon near the French-Swiss border. The military structure suited Vache and he took to the strict regime in the same way that he had equally flourished within the monastery as a child. In the spring of 1893, whilst wandering around Besançon one evening, he passed a young girl by the riverside. Finding an instant attraction, he introduced himself by commenting on the weather. The girl's name was Louise, a 19-year-old from Bourne-la-Dame, a small village to the northeast of Besançon. Working as a housemaid, she was new in town and keen to make friends. Joseph was wearing his army uniform and so, like many others would have done at the time, she judged it fair to trust the stranger and the pair walked along the river and visited a local cafe to eat dinner together. Over their meal, the pair chatted and discovered that they were both born in small towns and had both wound up in Besançon without any prior plans. For Joseph, it was more than mere coincidence and so he took it upon himself to propose to her that evening telling her, in what most might consider to be a fairly unendearing testament of love, that he would kill her if she were to ever betray him. Sensing that Joseph might not quite have been the man of her dreams, she quickly backed off. Though the pair spent several weeks going out together, she distanced herself from many romantic notions, eventually telling him that her mother forbade their marriage and had instead ordered her to return home at once. It was a shocking heartbreak for Joseph, who seemingly thought all was perfectly fine between the pair, and over the next weeks, he spent much of his free time writing letters to her, begging her to reconsider and put the concept of their marriage once more to her parents. Finally, once she had had enough of receiving letter after letter, she wrote him a letter herself, which she assumed would put a stop to his pining. It would be best if you stopped writing to me. Everything is finished between us. I do not want to go against the wishes of my mother. Furthermore, I do not love you. Farewell, Louise. It was deep heartbreak for Joseph, who attempted to channel his attention instead towards his army career. He saw himself as prime officer material, although his hopes were once again dashed early that summer, when in June he was passed over for promotion, despite his good conduct and hard work. Instead of knuckling down and awaiting a second opportunity, however, He proved his superiors right in their determination that he was unfit for command by getting drunk, smashing up his barracks, threatening his comrades with a razor blade and eventually attempting suicide by slashing his own throat. In truth, many of his bunkmates in the army knew Vache to have a reputation already, often flying off into violent rages, bouts of heavy drinking and tossing furniture about in fits of petulance. After his suicide attempt, He was hospitalised and transferred away from his regiment. Given four months' medical leave, he knew exactly how he should spend his newfound spare time. He packed his bag and made straight for Louise's hometown in order to convince her that she should give him another chance. 
just to make sure the whole interaction might travel smoothly. He stopped off at a firearms dealer along the way and bought a revolver. When he arrived in Bormla Dame, Joseph introduced himself to Louise's family, imploring the bemused mother and father to reconsider and allow him to marry their daughter. Finding himself somewhat unwelcome in the small town, on June the 23rd, he instead changed tact and visited Louise directly at the house of her employers. He knocked on the door, inquired after the young housemaid, and when she came to see who was there, she greeted the man that she thought she had already ended her relationship with. Angrily, she reconfirmed that she had no intention of marrying him. Joseph turned his sorrow into bitter anger and demanded that she return all the money that he had spent on her, taking her out to dinner and dances during the time spent together in Besançon. Louise begrudgingly accepted, telling him that if she paid him the money, he must leave and never disturb her, nor her employers again. In desperation, Joseph pulled out his revolver, shot Louise point-blank in the face, and then turned the gun onto himself, shooting twice. One might expect a revolver shot to the face to have no other result but to be fatal. Joseph, however, had either fortunately or unfortunately, depending on perspective, bought his bullets from a somewhat dubious seller who had chosen to only half fill the shells with powder. Due to this little money-saving stitch-up, Joseph instead only broke a few of Louise's teeth and punched her cheek, whilst he himself suffered from fairly horrific disfigurements as the bullets lodged in various points in his head. The gunshots drew attention from other townsfolk, who quickly ran to the scene, only to find Vache staggering listlessly in the street, covered in his own blood, ready to collapse onto the floor. After his inevitable hospitalisation, Joseph Vache was sent to an asylum in Dole, lying two-thirds of the way to Bormla Dame from Lyon. Once settled into the overpacked, poorly lit and poorly looked after asylum, he was observed by the doctors in order to discern his mental stability and to determine whether or not he was fit to stand trial for the shooting of Louise. The bullets may not have killed Joseph, but they had had a devastating effect on his physical appearance. He found himself with a thick scar on his right jaw. The bullet had severed the nerves in the right side of his face, leaving him with an uncontrollable twitch on that cheek. The effects of the tightly drawn skin that severed nerves also made speech difficult for Vache, and he slurred when he spoke which now lent him a voice that had a constant nasal ring. If that wasn't enough, one of the bullets he had fired into his own face was also lodged in his right ear canal, leaving an open wound that would leak pus and which made him partially deaf in that ear. Joseph spent much of his time locked behind the bars in his asylum cell, writing letters to Louise, telling her how dirty the institution was, how poor the food was, and how the other patients were criminals and degenerates. He wasn't far wrong in many of his observations. The asylum in Dole had been built for 500 patients, but at the time that he'd stayed there, it was holding 900. Whilst the institution claimed to be a modern hospital, casting aside torturous methods of treatment and forgoing the use of shackles and chains, patients were still placed behind bars and held in rooms that far more closely resembled prison cells rather than hospital rooms. The doctors in Dole watched Vache closely and found him to be suffering from what seemed to be auditory hallucinations. At certain moments, 
He raises his head and focuses his eyes, as if listening to invisible voices. During such times, he has the facial expressions of a madman. He frequently needed to be restrained in order to protect himself from self-harm, and he attempted suicide on at least one documented occasion, when he repeatedly smashed his head into a wall. At the end of August 1893, Vache decided that he had had enough of the asylum life, and propping a plank up against the perimeter wall, he scaled the makeshift bridge and sprung out into freedom. He evaded capture in the surrounding countryside, wearing the grey cotton uniform of the Dole Asylum patient, for two weeks before he was spotted by a pair of soldiers and promptly picked up and returned to his cell. On the train back to the asylum, however, he wasn't so keen to give up his freedom so easily. He requested the use of the toilet, and when the two guards that watched over him, whilst he sat in handcuffs and leg irons, denied him to leave the carriage, he asked instead if they could shimmy him over to the door and allow him to urinate out of the moving train that way instead. The guards agreed and stood behind him whilst he did his business. But at the very first opportunity, Joseph threw himself out of the moving carriage and hobbled away into the empty field. His escape was not long-lived and he was picked up two days later whilst he slept in a local farmhouse. Once back in the asylum, his observations were completed, with the doctors concluding, a delirium with a persecution complex of the First Order. He imagined the whole world is in league against him. We have done our best for him, but he accuses us of trying to kill him and shows no signs of being cured. Conclusion 1. Vache suffers from mental alienation characterised by a persecution complex and 2. He is not responsible for his actions. The diagnosis was critical for the case against Vache for shooting Louise. He was promptly found not guilty by reason of insanity and carted off to a new hospital near his hometown on the outskirts of the town of Grenoble, named the San Robert Asylum. The San Robert Asylum was a vast departure to the asylum in Dole. It was a modern hospital built in a campus style and nestled up against the Alps. It was thought to be one of the best institutions for the care of the insane in all of France. There were male and female wings to the east and west, flanking a large main building reserved for common use. Therapies at San Robert reflected the modern architecture and gone were the shackles, chains and bars of the past. Each day was regimented into blocks of time, with the morning starting at 5am and lunch sandwiched between a morning and afternoon work shift where patients practiced music therapy, theatre, sewing and cobbling. For Vache, he felt that all his Christmases had come at once upon his arrival, just after midnight on the 21st of December 1893, although getting there had been somewhat of a struggle. Though he promised the guards that escorted him by train that he would behave himself on the journey, he later wrote that he wanted to see blood running everywhere. For the most part, this only translated to him yelling anarchist slogans and mildly struggling throughout. He was placed into the high security wing and given a room with a view of the Alps. As before, one of the first things that Vache did once he settled into his new room was to write. He wrote incessantly and often he wrote letters to Louise, which he was permitted to send once every two weeks, though none ever reached her as her father intercepted them in order to save his daughter's anguish. Upon his arrival in St. Robert, he wrote to Louise of the institution. 
I arrived by train through a little valley surrounded by snow-capped mountains, and there it was, glowing by the light of the moon. We crossed gardens as beautiful as any in Grenoble, whereas in Dole we were surrounded by guards who might as well have been executioners. Here there are guards who embody vigilance and humanity. Vache spent the next three months relaxing in St. Robert's Asylum, where he underwent hydrotherapy, treatment via leeches, opium and traditional talking therapy. In his downtime, away from the common area, he spent his time reading quietly in his room. Doctors found him to be docile and polite, and in the letters that he wrote to Dr. Edmund Defoe, the director of the hospital, he explained of how he had accepted and understood his crime and his punishment, and of how he wished to put his life back together. At the time, hospitals like Sam Roberts were a life-saving institution for many unwell members of society, made destitute and homeless by their various ailments. However, they were constantly under desperate pressure to rehabilitate and release, rather than allow their patients to stew in despair as they had in the decades prior. On April 1st, 1894, four months after his admission, Joseph Vachet was judged as perfectly well cured by the hospital staff and found the gates swing open to him, granting him his freedom. Vachet, however, was far from a well man. As he left the asylum, he saw himself as blessed from God for having the opportunity to stay in such an institution and cared for so well. This feeling of being blessed was reinforced by the voices in his head which he attributed to God, telling him what to do and where to go next. During his time in the asylum, the work he had undertaken saw him paid 170 francs, and with this money, along with his personal articles of a knife and a revolver that were returned to him upon his release, he set out onto the open road of the French countryside. At first, his direction was listless, wandering for two weeks, taking odd jobs, until he bought a train ticket to go and stay with his sister in Menton, a southeastern coastal town, a stone's throw from Monaco. His sister was not entirely happy to see him, however, and after only one week, she bought him a train ticket back north to Saint-Genis-Laval, suggesting he return to the monastery that he had attended as a child. Once Joseph had boarded the train and was safely in the distance, she returned home to clear out the room he had stayed in during the week, only to find piles of crumpled letters tossed into the fireplace, all written to Louise. Once he arrived at the monastery, Vachet found himself once more less welcome than he might have hoped, and the monks turned him away. With nowhere else to turn, Joseph began walking the 130 miles towards his hometown of Beaufort. It was quite a hike through the French countryside, and he would pass through deep forested canyons, vast open farmland, and rocky mountainous shards of granite all along the way. But incredibly, the distance was nothing to the ground that Vachet would eventually cover in his lifetime as he unwittingly strolled his way to Beaufort and into the lifestyle of the nomadic vagabonds, trudging up and down France in characteristic migratory fashion. Whether it was ever a conscious decision, or simply a consequence of his situation, like it would have been for so many others, Joseph Fachet seamlessly slipped into the life of a vagabond. He carried his possessions, a change of clothes, a few francs, his regimental papers and a strong wooden club in a travelling sack and adopted the lifestyle of the road, hopping from hamlet to hamlet looking for work, 
begging for food and bedding down under the branches of a chestnut tree or on a pile of hay in an old barn. At times he would strike lucky and be invited into the homes of the people he would meet on his journey, but times were tough for the nomadic travellers and trust was trending at a premium. Vachet was fortunate in that he still carried his regimental papers at all and whenever he felt people eyeing him suspiciously, whether begging for food or seeking a job, he could always fall back on the official documents to gain a helpful portion of trust or to turn the cautious glances at his facial disfigurements into caring looks of sympathy. Ten miles to the west of Beaufort, Vachet reached the small town of Beaurepaire, surrounded by fields on all sides, with rolling hills laying on the horizon. It was a sprawling town with a population of around 3,000. Alongside the farming economy, Beaurepaire supported a healthy textiles industry, with several small factories employing the locals, many who lived in dorms owned and operated by the factory owners, with bed and board used to offset the low wages paid for their daily rate. Eugenie Delon was a 21-year-old silk mill worker who had been born in the local area. She, like many, lived in the factory's dorm on the outskirts of the town and worked from 5am in the morning until 8pm at night for a pittance. She was well known in Beaurepair, popular amongst the local men and she enjoyed all the fruits of her position as a young, attractive, independent woman. At 7.30pm on the evening of May the 19th, she left her workstation at the mill and told her colleagues that she was stepping outside to get some air. The next day, after she failed to show for work, a few of her colleagues began asking after her, but no one, it seemed, had seen her since she stepped out the previous evening. A few people went out to see if they could track her down, but it was the unfortunate fate of a local sheep farmer who stumbled across her feet sticking out of a hedge just 200 yards from the mill who was to uncover her fate. Thinking the feet were strange, the farmer pulled out the body of Eugenie to find a true horror show. He called for help and the local authorities quickly removed the body, taking it to the Beaurepair Hospital for autopsy. A doctor by the name of Breté had the ugly task of inspecting the remains, which lay on the operating table, an unidentifiable mess. In his report, he noted bruising, scratching and finger marks around her throat leading him to conclude that she had been initially strangled, but the killer had not stopped there. The young girl's face had been brutally mutilated, with torn lips, bruising and stab wounds in her throat and chest. Her right breast had been cut off and her stomach and chest had been badly mutilated by blunt trauma. The local police began their investigations, initially believing it to be a crime of passion, and their first suspect was a man named Eugene Dorier. Locals pointed out that Eugenie had had many boyfriends in the town, but Dorier had been her most recent. With no other evidence, and despite the fact that Dorier had an alibi, police arrested the man and held him in jail for questioning. With no other leads, the police continued to work backwards through Eugenie's love life and next picked up Louis-Francois. Rumours had turned up the fact that Eugenie had recently had an illegitimate child and believed it to have been Francois's. Police swooped, arresting the man and jailing him, again despite a credible alibi and the fact that the same rumours surrounding the illegitimate child claimed that the entire issue had already been sorted with no animosity from either party. When the police found a watch near to the crime scene, they arrested the owner, a young servant of the local factory owner named Louis Lecour. 
It turned out that Louis had lost his watch several days prior to the murder and he once again had a solid alibi. But just like the others, police jailed him anyway. It's safe to say that the authorities were fairly desperate and clutching at straws. They had no other evidence to lead from and so they just simply swept up all with the most tenuous links to Eugenie. Remarkably, when a local visited the police to hand in a bloody knife that he had found near to the crime scene, they simply turned him away and discarded the knife, thoroughly uninterested. At the same time, word in town began to spread and stories circulated of who the townsfolk thought was the primary suspect. On the day of the murder, several had stories of a stranger with a scarred face. 55-year-old sheep herder Victorine Gay told of her own story of how she'd been stalked by the man until she ran away. This story was not unique. Two other local women claimed to have been stalked by a disfigured vagabond and a scarred man. The first was followed by the man until she met with her husband, which soon saw him clear off, whilst the second had to use her own initiative, talking loudly to an imaginary companion in order to frighten him away from following her. The jailed suspects were eventually released almost a month later after the members of the town filed a petition for their freedom. It seemed all but the local police knew or cared who the murderer of Eugenie had been. After Vache had killed Eugenie Delon, he dragged her body from the alleyway where he had crossed paths with her and thrown her to the ground to strangle her, stuffing her remains in a bush and washed himself in the river that passed by the mill. A kind of fever came over me, of revulsion and craziness. I tried to contain myself, but the rage made me stronger. I let go of everything and threw myself at my victim. Even after that, to the four corners of France, I have been shaking out this bag of burdensome abominations I had inherited at Dole. Vache bedded down on a haystack overlooking the scene that had in the hours prior been the location of a violently brutal assault and murder by his own hands and fell into a deep sleep. The next morning, he woke and began walking out of town. He walked the 40 miles to the city of Grenoble, the capital of the district of Isère, lying at the feet of the French Alps. He attempted to find work in various positions but found that people there were suspicious of his facial scarring and scruffy, vagabond appearance. In an attempt to relax them, he showed many his regimental papers, but though it may have softened some attitudes towards him, it didn't help in securing work, and so he began walking further out into the French countryside. Here he was slightly more successful, gaining employ in small temporary farming positions. In June of 1894, he was hired to scythe hay near Geneva, 90 miles north of Grenoble. Somewhere along the road, he had picked up an accordion which he played for passers-by and children. In his downtime, he wrote to Louise, telling her about his travelling lifestyle and the sights he saw on the roads and walkways of France, describing the sprawling, varied landscapes of the rural countryside. As the summer drew on, Vachet worked his way south down the Rhone Valley, working on small farms for the grape harvest and averaged around 20 miles per day. By the end of the summer, as the leaves turned dark and began falling from the trees in the north, Joseph Vache entered the district of Var in the far southern province region, bordered on the coast by the Mediterranean Sea. Here there were sharp shards of granite 
pierced in the deep green valleys filled with forests and rivers, small hamlets built at the base of rocky outcrops and small clearings in the tree lines. On November the 20th, Vache spied a young 13-year-old girl named Louise Marshall walking by herself along a forest pathway. He dragged her into a nearby disused barn, strangled her, slit her throat, mutilated her abdomen and raped her dead body. Later, when a neighbour of Louise, Charles Rue, discovered the body, police arrested him as they had no other leads and were suspicious as to how he may have found the body in the first place if he didn't know it was there already. They also found a set of footprints nearby to the body that had been made by wooden-soled shoes, the type worn by Rue. The problem with this evidence was that wooden-soled shoes were worn by most other people in the area too, given that they were the traditional footwear made locally. After weeks of questioning, Rue was eventually released by a bemused police who had no more to work with. Whilst Charles Rue had stewed in prison, Fache kept walking back north, accepting a job outside Grenoble in December, watching over a farmer's cattle, though he found the work too dull and left the town halfway through his contract. Heading northwest, he spent most of the rest of the winter walking towards the west coast of France, where he was next spotted outside the village of Etoile, on the southwest coast of France, 100 miles to the north of Bordeaux. Around noon on Easter Day of 1895, Vacher attempted to rape a woman named Antoinette Augustine Marshland at Knife Point. She had been returning from a neighbouring town where she had spent the morning selling oranges when she had been grabbed from the road from behind. Struggling, she squirmed out of Vacher's grip and threw rocks at him, screaming until two local men showed up, eventually scaring him away. Augustine Mortaru was a bright, 17-year-old girl from Atul. She was the youngest child of seven in a small farming family, though her father worked mainly as a woodcutter to supplement their small income. Augustine's elder sister had moved to a neighbouring village and had recently fallen sick. Requesting that her parents visit her, they asked their daughter Augustine to go in their stead as they were too busy with work to tend to their sick child. At 9am, Augustine left her home under a grey sky. She grabbed her umbrella and began walking along the road to the next village with her small dog, Quee for security. It was a big journey for Augustine, who had never made the trip alone before, but being a public holiday, the road was busy with people coming and going, many of the faces familiar locals. Around 11am, a woman with her two daughters stumbled across her dead body, lying under an open umbrella in a small thicket just off the roadside. She rushed off to get help, but by the time she returned, she found a large crowd already gathering around the girl's body. Just prior to her own discovery, three local boys out searching for mushrooms had also discovered Augustine, and between them and the woman, word had spread fast. By noon, almost the entire village had amassed by the side of the road to see for themselves what had become of the young local girl. Her body was eventually removed from the road and taken to the local hospital where an autopsy discovered that she had several massive stab wounds in her throat and chest. Her abdomen lay eviscerated. She was also missing both her shoes and her earrings, both of which appeared to have been removed from her body after her death. That morning, several witnesses responded to the murder by recalling a mean-looking stranger on the road. A man with Vache's description, wearing grey pants, a blue tattered shirt and wooden-soled shoes was sent out by the local magistrate, Louis-Albert von Fed, 
who honed in on this man as a number one suspect. The locals had other ideas though. With the help of the local newspaper, a local landowner by the name of Eugene Grenier had fallen under suspicion by many. A businessman with several enemies, rumours began circulating that he had fallen to erotic insanity, slaying Augustine in a blind rage. The story had absolutely no grounding in reality, but to the small community hell-bent on gaining some kind of retribution, and with the local authorities failing to offer any answers themselves, the local people made their own conclusions. On a wave of hatred, locals scratched slogans such as death to Eugene in the trees surrounding the crime scene, and when authorities ordered the graffiti removed and refused to arrest Grenier, the papers accused them of protecting the rich while stomping over the feelings of the poor. The 27th of August was designated as Augustine Mortaru Day, and a large gathering of locals visited her gravesite in the local cemetery. Talk rumbled, emotions swelled, and the gathering marched towards Grenier's house to lynch the innocent man. Fortunately, the local authorities had expected something to happen and had set up a roadblock en route to his house. Eventually, probably more in view of his own safety, Grenier was arrested and jailed for 45 days. Upon his release, he escaped to a town 25 miles away with his family. The locals hunted down the carriage he was supposed to be travelling in, drove it from the road and attacked the driver. Opening the doors, however, they found it empty. Grenier had slipped out the back door and made his way far, far from the baying crowds, never to return. Vachet, meanwhile, washed in the small creek outside at all, changed his clothes and cut the toes from his new shoes in order to accommodate his own feet. He had stolen the girl's earrings too, but now perhaps it hadn't been such a smart idea, he reasoned. If he was caught with the earrings, he could be arrested for thievery and so he tossed them into the bushes by the roadside and walked out of the region, northeast towards Paris. Just outside of the village, he stopped off into the house of an old widow named Madame Chirado and asked to make lunch on her stove. Whilst cooking, he told her his name. She noticed he was nursing a small injury. It was a bite from a dog, he explained, and she cleaned the wound for him. He then went on to tell her all about the local girl's body that he had seen by the roadside earlier that morning as he had left at all. A week and a half later, Vachet met a farmer on the road who he stopped to chat with. The old farmer noted Vachet's shoes and offered him a pair of his own shoes to replace the butchered pair that Vachet had taken from Augustine's body. Vachet received them gratefully, took off the girl's pair and cut them to pieces in front of the farmer, tossing the scraps into a nearby bush. Thinking his behaviour suspicious, the farmer later recalled the story to the mayor who sent out the local police to catch up to Vache. When they apprehended him several miles away, they questioned him about his travels and where he had come from, but when he showed them his regimental papers, they changed tact and allowed him to continue on his way. Vache changed direction and once again began heading southeast towards Lille. Over the next few weeks in July, several reports of attacks by a dark-haired vagabond circulated wherever Vachet set foot. Two women claimed to have escaped from attacks by a would-be rapist, and one old lady was found with her head and neck torn apart by stab wounds. In the forest outside of Lyon, two young boys told their parents how a man had tried to lure them from the road and into the darkness of the forest, but that they would run away. On the 24th of August, in the forested area of saint 120 miles to the west of Lyon, 
a young boy returned home from tending his cows to find the body of his mother lying on the kitchen floor. She had been brutally eviscerated, her throat cut wide open and her body raped. A week later, Vache had exited from the east side of Lyon and found himself in the small village of Benonce. It was a tiny hamlet with a population of 450, isolated from the nearby city of Lyon by the lack of electricity and the swaddling cliffs and forest land that hung over the valley housing the village. Vache stopped into a small farmhouse to beg for food, but found himself promptly turned away. The same was repeated in the farmhouse next door, and seeing his luck running out in Benonce, Vache walked instead to the neighbouring village of Ongar. Many of the farmers who had turned him away noticed him hanging around the next several days on the road between the two villages. On August 31st, Victor Portalier, a 15-year-old shepherd from Ongla, was out watching his cattle whilst they pastured in a nearby field. Born to a poor family in the town of Travaux, Victor's father died when he was aged 12. It was a family-destroying event that saw his mother, destitute, turn to prostitution to survive a move that would later see Victor taken away by child protection services. He was removed by a priest to Lyon and then later fostered to Ongla, where he lived a modest life, daily tending to the farm's livestock. Every day the boys in the local farms took their cattle out to graze at 2pm, but on this particular day, Victor left 30 minutes early. Showing up in the empty field overlooking the valley below, he sat down to rest beneath a large tree and watched over the cow. By the time the other boys arrived in the field, just 30 minutes later, Victor's body was found resting up against a juniper bush, large pools of his blood staining the ground between the body and the walnut tree that he had sat below just 30 minutes before. The shepherd that found him ran off back to Ongla to alert the authorities, who carried out the autopsy in the field where he lay. As before, Vache had killed the boy by strangling him, then sliced him open, mutilating his body slicing off his genitals and raping his dead body. The newspaper commented on the scene. The cadaver was mutilated so appallingly that it is impossible to believe in a single murderer. One would think the little one was killed by a bull who then turned its horns upon him. A search party was put together by 150 of the local villagers who fanned out across the local area in the search for the murderer. Over the previous days, many had seen Vache on the road between Benoît and Anglar, and several had turned him away from their door. As such, it was a simple matter to put together a reliable description, which was published to all the local towns and hospitals. Age, 30-35 years. Height, 1m 56cm. Thick black eyebrows. Colouring, pale and sickly. White hands indicate that he does not indulge in any hard work. Head covering, straw hat, said to be a Panama, with the front pulled down over his eyes. Sometimes he wears a beret. Distinguishing characteristics, scar across his right eye, carries a small work bag and club. It was a remarkably on-point description, but nevertheless, only one person was arrested who turned out to be a case of mistaken identity. He was later released and the case fell completely cold. As the police scrabbled around for non-existent clues in the local fields, Vache, meanwhile, coasted along the road, headed in the direction of Marseille. But within a month, on the 22nd of September, his path, 120 miles to the north of Marseille, 
on the outskirts of the village of Trunar, crossed with Alina Lays, the 13-year-old daughter of a local landowner who had been out that morning to a neighbouring village selling eggs and cheese. As she strolled along the road home, Vache sprung on her, slashed her throat and sliced open her abdomen, mutilating her corpse. Moments after he had murdered the young girl, whilst he was in the process of attempting to scrape up dirt from the floor to cover the pools of blood left by her body, a local farmer named Theodore Vache passed by Vache on the road and asked him if he was okay. Vache told the man that he was fine, he just had a nosebleed. Whether or not the man bought the story, which one would hope was doubtful, he left the scene fairly rapidly, allowing Vache to go on covering the stains on the ground. During the investigation that was carried out by the authorities, a schoolbook was found nearby to the body. A page had been torn out which had the letters M-A-R-C scribbled across. The authorities took this to be a name which led to the arrest of a local carnival fighter named August Marseille, which made very little sense to anyone given that the first four letters of that surname were spelled M-A-R-S. Police eventually conceded to the obvious and released him. One week later, on the 29th of September, 40 miles away from the crime scene in Trunar, a body was discovered in the threadbare field nestled among the rocky outcrops of the Ardèche Hills. It was the body of 14-year-old Pierre Masseau Pellet, a shepherd from Saint-Étienne de Boulogne. Pierre was still in school and watched sheep on Thursdays and Sundays to earn a small wage. When he took his sheep to graze in a field and failed to return for lunch, the farm owner sent out another shepherd boy to fetch him. The boy quickly came across the body of Pierre stuffed behind a large boulder in the corner of the field near a small wooden hut. He displayed the typical signs of a vache murder, having his throat and stomach sliced open and his pants removed. The police arrested a local man named Bernardin Bannier for the murder, a local political figure who had several enemies. With no evidence to hold him on, however, he was quickly released much to the local chagrin, who took it upon themselves to break into his house and set fire to the ground floor. Bannier was eventually forced to flee from the mob violence and leave town. With autumn approaching and the cold weather setting in, Vachet began a trek towards Brittany in the west of France. Along the way, he made a hat of white rabbit fur, which he believed symbolised his purity with God. He also took the time to carve the initials MJLBG into his club, although the meaning of which is completely lost. Throughout the winter, Vache kept his head down and laid low, eventually emerging in February near Le Mans, 150 miles southwest of Paris. Here he attempted to rape a 12-year-old girl named Alphonsine Derouet on her way to church, but when she screamed and alerted nearby onlookers, Vache was forced to retreat back into the shadows. When officers took his description, they found that the vagabond man had made his presence known in the days and nights prior, twice attempting to assault local women. They also found he'd spent an evening in a local farmhouse where he told the owner his name. A description was published locally amongst the neighbouring towns and a gendarme met with him just a few miles down the road from where he grabbed the young girl. But when Vache showed the officer his military paperwork, he was simply asked if he'd seen anyone suspicious on the road. Not one to miss an opportunity, Vache pointed in the opposite direction and insisted that in fact he had, several miles down the road. The gendarme thanked him and left on his way. 
Just a few miles down the road, and a matter of days later, Vashay was once again entangled with the law, this time for aggravated assault. Only this time, the arresting officer had actually taken him into the station and not allowed him to pull any wool over his eyes. He was sentenced to one month in jail and never realising that Vashay was the hunted man just miles down a short road to the next village, he served his time in relative peace and quiet and was released on the 6th of April 1896. With a spark of religious fervour, Vashay decided to make the pilgrimage to Lourdes, 470 miles south in the foothills of the Pyrenees on the border of France and Spain. Vashay's path to Lourdes was long and winding, and by the time he arrived in the winter, he had spanned over 1,400 miles on foot, stopping off to brutally murder Marie Moussier in a small town outside Lyon and Rosine Rodier. Marie Moussier had only just married and Vachet stole her wedding ring after he had strangled, bitten her face, gutted and raped her body, though like the earrings earlier, he later thought this may be incriminating and tossed it away. The story of Rosine Rodier was similar, he killed her as he passed through the Horte Loire region of south-central France. Prior to murdering Rosine, he became lost in a dense fog. Convinced that he would be caught, he finally came across a train track that he had been following before he had made his brutal diversion. I really believe God saved me, he later said of the event. When he reached Lourdes, winter had rolled back around and the hills and mountains surrounding the town were capped in snow. Joining with the other pilgrims, he visited the Massabiel Grotto, where Bernadette Subris had seen an apparition of the Virgin Mary in 1858, transforming the quiet mountain town into one of the most important Catholic pilgrim sites in the world. After paying his respects in the grotto, he climbed a mountain overlooking the town and wrote a prayer in the snow on behalf of Louise, the woman he had loved, and then shot in the face. Virgin Mary, Mother in the Sky, Watch over her as you watch over me, and with all your power before God, bring her back to me one day as white as the snow. He spent the remainder of the winter in the south of France, collecting a second club, upon which he scratched the name Mary and the town of Lourdes. During the colder weather, he managed to find trusting families to stay with. In February, he stayed with a husband and wife and their children. In the evenings, he read to them and played accordion for them. The family later recalled that he had been a polite and proper guest. He had told them that the scars on his face had resulted from a kick by a horse whilst he was in the army and he took a keen liking to their son, Henri, who the farmer said he frequently called to sit beside him. In the second farmhouse that he stayed in, he traded his board for penmanship lessons for their daughter. He wrote lines with the young girl. Among travellers, there are often great minds and sometimes even great friends of God. As the weather began to warm and the spring of 1897 dawned, Vachet met with a traveller friend, Celestine Cotray. Over drinks, Cotray told him of how he had 200 francs stored in a lockbox. Unsurprisingly, the very next day, his body was found with his head stoved in by a club weapon and his trousers pulled down around his ankles. As he looked on from the crowd that gathered around the body, Vachet stepped out and offered to carry the dead man to the mayor's office. Being a stranger, however, the local authorities were quick to suspect him and they noted that he had bought a ticket on a train bound for Lyon the same day. 
Rache had so far killed with impunity, offered to him by the isolated and fragmented nature of the local police in rural France at the time. But in April of 1897, a man was hired in the town of Belay, in the foothills of the Alps, who would take another look at some of the files from the murdered victims. His conclusions were to make entirely unattractive reading for the authorities. 35-year-old Emile Fourquet obtained his law degree in Paris in 1886, and after graduation, he served in several minor judicial roles before eventually, in April 1897, he was hired and installed as the investigating magistrate for the market town of Belay in the Bougie district of France, near to the Swiss and Italian borders. Belay had a small population of around 4,000, surrounded by rolling hills and vast, sprawling fields. Fourquet was a tall, thin, balding man with glasses and a tightly twisted moustache who had a penchant for paperwork. He remarked that the position of investigating magistrate afforded him the opportunity to fulfil a burning passion. When he took office, he immediately set about reading through the paperwork left behind by his preceding officers and came across the file on the murder of Victor Portalier, whose murder had just so happened to have fallen within his jurisdiction. It was a disturbing case, and it stuck in his mind long enough to reignite a spark of curiosity in June, when one morning, as he read the Lyon Republican, he came across the story of another mutilation, instantly making a connection to the earlier murder. What the rural French authorities lacked in communication, they made up for in their collection and filing of case paperwork. Fourquet took advantage of this and ordered copies of dossiers from across French districts which had been written up on unsolved, violent murders from the past several years. Within 48 hours, he had received the reports on a further seven murders from across France that involved abdominal eviscerations and post-mortem rape. Recognising a series of patterns within the gruesome facts of each murder, Fourquet began tying connections amongst each case together and surmised that each murder, despite the vast distances that stretched between them, may have been carried out by one and the same man. He meticulously pieced together a criminal profile over a century before criminal profiling was a standardised process adopted by the FBI. He pieced together a series of tables documenting probable murder weapon and location of wounds on each body. This he used to create an identifiable modus operandi by the suspected assassin. He then created a second table in which he filled in all the details supplied by the witnesses of each case. The process was laborious and honed in on the finest of details, which all amounted to a finely detailed profile of the man he suspected to have carried out the crimes, from psychology to physical features. On July the 10th, Fourquet sent out this profile to over 250 magistrates across the country, preempting by a decade the nationwide process of investigation and cooperation between the French district-level police that would eventually be introduced in 1907. Whilst Fourquet was busy working on the paperwork, Vachet was out on the road. In early July, he bought a dog from a cobbler, which he named Lulette, and somehow managed to tame a magpie, tying it to a piece of string. He kept his new travelling companions close for almost a month before the dog angered him by not eating the stew that Vachet put down for it. Seeing it as a snub, Vachet killed both the dog and the magpie. 
By August, he had made it to the dense forested landscapes of the Ardèche region in the southeast of France. Outside the isolated village of Champy, Vaché crept up on a woman named Marie-Eugénie Hérault as she watched her two young children play amongst the trees. He grabbed her by the throat, threw her to the ground. As he reached for his bag, she let out a loud scream. Unfortunately for Vaché, she had been in the woods with her husband and three children, and within moments, Seraphine and his son Fernor stepped into the clearing and launched themselves on top of him. In the commotion, rocks flew through the air as wildly as fists. The brawl was loud enough to alert another group of neighbours who were out walking nearby, and they also came into the clearing, jumping on the dog pile. They pinned Vaché to the ground, dragged him to a nearby farmhouse, and locked him inside to await the local gendarme, who arrived from the next town six hours later. Vaché was sentenced to three months' imprisonment for outrage to public decency, but it was no sweat for the vagabond. He envisaged another quiet stint in prison like before. A few months and then he could hit the road again. Vaché, however, had no way of knowing that Fourquet had been busy profiling him and sending out his description across France. And as luck would have it, finally, an official who crossed paths with him was aware that he may have been in the presence of a wanted man. The local magistrate sent the description of his prisoner to Fourquet's office, who immediately requested for his transfer to Belay. For the nomadic murderer, it appeared the game was finally up. To transport Vaché to Belay, two guards were appointed to his care, who handcuffed him and placed him on an empty train carriage, sitting on either side of him. Despite their careful watch, Vaché still very nearly escaped when he tried to toss himself out of the window of the moving train. Upon his meeting with Fourquet, the magistrate knew that he had surmised correctly. He now just needed to coax some form of admission from the man he had so fastidiously studied by the details of the murders he was sure that he had carried out. In order to do so, Fourquet adopted a technique of psychological questioning, turning his back on the barbaric, old-fashioned techniques of torture, aggression and violence that had for hundreds of years yielded results with investigation work. Instead, Fourquet acted to allow Vaché to open up on his own accord by questioning him from an emotional distance and gaining trust by listening to the prisoner's stories. Vaché told Fourquet of how he had met, fallen in love and shot Louise, of the asylums in Dole and St. Robert, and of how he had been treated since his release. People ridiculed the deformity of my mouth and because of the bad odour that came from the pus from my ear. For three weeks, Vaché told him of life on the road, but crucially, he avoided incriminating himself in a single murder. Fourquet knew he needed to change tactics, and so he stepped things up a gear. In a bluff, he told Vaché that he would release him in a few days, that clearly he'd been mistaken, and he wasn't the first man. He was in fact the third man that he'd brought in by mistake. Before releasing him though, he requested that Vaché might help him with a personal request. He invented a story that he'd been researching and writing a book about the migratory habits of the vagabonds, and rather than talk about the supposed murders, he would appreciate it if the pair could pass the time until Vaché's release, discussing his observations on the people and places of French rural life. Vaché agreed and promptly went on to furnish Fourquet with a host of detail regarding his whereabouts over the previous years, including time and season. 
With each thud of the shovel into the ground beneath his own feet, Vashay dug himself a hole deeper and deeper, and Fourquet passively filed each detail away without batting an eyelid. On October the 7th, Fourquet brought in 12 witnesses from across France who had seen Vachet near to each of the murders. Each witness positively identified Vachet, and that was enough for Fourquet. Vachet had supplied him with enough incriminated information to plant him at each of the murder's crime scenes at the correct times, and the witnesses solidified his stories. Feigning slightly more confidence than he really had, Fourquet told Vachet that he knew everything, that he knew that he was a murderer, and that he knew it all well before the two had even met. It was only a matter of apprehending you, he boldly stated. The ruse worked, however, and at 7pm the same evening, Vachet handed over a written confession to Fourquet, implicating himself in the murder of ten people. God writes observations to France. So much the worse for you if you think I am responsible. Your way of acting by itself makes me pity you. If I kept the secret of my misfortune, it's because I believed it to be in the general interest. But since apparently I am mistaken, I have come to tell you the whole truth. Yes, it was I who committed all those crimes you blamed me for, and all of this in a moment of rage. As I said to the doctor from the prison medical service, I was bitten by a rabid dog about the age of seven or eight, but I'm not so sure, although I remember taking a remedy. Only my parents can assure you of the bitings. As for myself, I always believed that it was the medicine that corrupted my blood. Let those who think they are crying over me cry over themselves. It would be better for them to be in my place. Help yourself and God who makes everything possible and whose reasons no human can understand will help you. Signed, Vache J. The confession letter was long, rambling, and attempted to push responsibility away from himself, blaming the bite of a rabid dog as a child. Over the next days and weeks, he also used his experiences in the Dole Asylum as pushing him to commit murder. Furthermore, the confession letter was vague, too vague for Fouquet, who feared it would not hold up to judicial standards, and so he insisted to Vachet that he needed more details on the crimes. Vachet, however, was not in the mood to furnish him with anything more. The details, he said, were too ugly. Fourquet turned it back upon Vachet, explaining that if he intended to plead insanity, then undoubtedly the court would need more details. This had the desired effect, and Vachet agreed to give more details if the newspapers would print his story. Naturally, the newspapers were falling over themselves to get in on the details of his gruesome crime spree, and so, with the publication of his confession letter in Le Petit Journal on the 16th of October, 1897, Vachet told the nation all. Vachet's story spread rapidly throughout the French press and leaked out across borders, finding headlines globally. Referring to Vachet as the French Jack the Ripper, the Shepherd Killer, Vachet the Ripper and the Ripper of the Southeast, his story ran as far as San Francisco Cool, who ran a full-page story on Vachet with the headline, The Greatest of Human Monsters. He is repugnant physically as he is morally. This being whose face convulsively contorts and grimaces, this cripple whose defects repulse even the ugliest prostitutes. When he spoke with the French reporters as part of his deal with Fourquet, Vachet referred to himself as an anarchist of God who was 
creating victims on air. He told them of how his victims never suffered and of how the entire thing was difficult for him to recollect due to an inexplicable rage that would flood over him as he committed the crimes, being sure that they were writing of his mental instability. Why did I kill? I don't know. It just came over me. I had fits. I don't know why. It's the poison that wanted to get out. And the mutilations? How do you explain them? I don't know what happened after the murders, but when I left, I was relieved. I felt better. Moreover, if God did not command me to kill, it wouldn't have happened. Do you have any remorse for your victims? No, because God wanted it. Your fits are less frequent now that you're here. You haven't tried to kill anyone. Yes, but look, the last person that I took, I let go without harming her. It could be that the sickness has passed over me. He agreed to pose for a press photo if he could be allowed to wear his white rabbit fur hat to symbolise his purity. He then asked the guard to borrow his set of keys, which he held in his left hand. This, he said, was to symbolise the keys to heaven. With the publication of Vachet's story, Fourquet was now becoming a very busy man. Though Vachet had admitted to ten murders, the widespread coverage of the case had sparked a flurry of magistrates sending in their cases, which they believed may have been linked. A total of 88 case files now sat on Fourquet's desk, and witness testimony flowed in day after day. In December 1897, Vachet was transferred to a maximum security wing of St. Paul Prison on the southern edge of Lyon. Having gained Vachet's indisputable confession in the murders, it now fell to Fourquet to establish whether or not he was insane and whether or not he would be fit to stand trial for his crimes. It was a question that was far more divisive than one might imagine. The papers ran two opposing editorial opinions on the case that represented well the public opinion. If Vachet was deemed insane, he would be sent to an asylum, promptly cured and released back into the wild, a situation that very few felt appealing. If he was deemed sane, on the other hand, what did that say about the French people? Were they all capable of such brutal crimes? The case had stirred up a public storm and many were demanding that justice be seen to. If Vachet managed to return to the asylum, quite aside from questions of justice, the public outrage would be disastrous for Fourquet's career. In order to answer the question of sanity, the magistrate therefore turned to the help of three extremely qualified men which he felt sure he could rely on. First up was Monsieur Rabatel, whose job it would be to observe Vachet's behaviour in prison. Then there was Pierre, who was drafted in to check through Vachet's family history and asked to research if he had any history of hereditary mental illness. And finally, a doctor named Alexandre Lassassagne, a criminal anthropologist working in the University of Lyon who was to dissect his criminal behaviour. This was something that Lassassagne had something of a penchant for, and over the previous years was an area that he had made quite a name for himself in, pioneering investigative forensics. If you needed the right man for the job in the 1890s, you could not get much better than Dr. Lassassagne. Dr. Jean-Alexandre Eugène Lassassagne was born in 1843 in Quercy, Cahors, to modest parents. His father worked tirelessly as the director of the Imperial Hotel in Cahors, whilst his mother stayed at home to look after Alexandra and his two younger brothers. In 1874, 
too poor to study at a private medical school, La Sassania enrolled at the Imperial School of Military Health Service in Strasbourg to study medicine. During the Franco-Prussian War, he found his school wrecked and so instead transferred to Montpellier to finish his education. As his training had been with a military school, post-graduation work led him to split his time between working as both professor and military doctor, where he served in Algeria and at the Val de Grasse Army Training Hospital. There he climbed the ranks and obtained the position of Chair of Hygiene and Legal Medicine in 1874. In 1878, he continued his academic interest in criminal anthropology in the Department for Legal Medicine in the University of Lyon, which later appointed him Chair of the Department in 1881. During his time serving in Algeria, La Sassagne became fascinated with the tattoos of the soldiers that he lived alongside and took to documenting each and every one he could lay his hands on. He copied the images and systematically filed each one into a database that categorised them by theme, wording and meaning. By the time his service was over, he had catalogued over 2,000 tattoos, which he went on to publish in an anthropology journal. This obsessive drive to categorise, file and neatly curate manifested itself in his main anthropological interest too. Lassasanya was obsessed by criminology and he spent much of his early life as an academic, deeply pondering what it was that drove a criminal to commit the crimes they did. Throughout his research into this area, he visited criminals in prison across France, facilitating some of the hardest to write autobiographies, furnishing them with pencils and paper and motivating them to tell him their stories. In life, he collected their writings and then later, after their heads were guillotined, he would dissect their brains in the laboratory. For La Sassagne, he believed wholeheartedly that the brain was a malleable organ that would respond to outside stimuli and that human instinct was highly reactive to social circumstance. In short, he believed that both biological and sociological forces created a criminal and both lay at the very foundations of criminal anthropology. These theories were in direct opposition to the Italian schools of criminology at the time that theorised and taught in the concept of the born criminal. In his practical work, La Sassagne believed that forensics needed to be brought into the modern scientific era. He taught practical training and extensive research were the keys to unlocking the secrets of every crime and that standardised procedures were needed in every area of medical forensics to get to the bottom of each case without any lingering doubt. In the late 1800s, doctors were still poorly paid to carry out autopsies. They are often done at all hours of the day, often by candlelight and at times on kitchen tables belonging to the victims. La Sassagne recognised that this practice had to change if reliable records were to ever be collected and used as useful evidence. To this end, he worked on and eventually published a pocket-sized handbook titled The Handbook for the Medical Expert, which could be read by every doctor, no matter if they practised in the darkest rural recesses or the brightest cities, allowing them to follow forensic procedure and to carry out a minutely detailed autopsy recording all the data necessary to identify, among other things, a victim's height, age, weight, cause of death and pre-existing conditions. Under his tutelage, students learnt in both theory and practical lessons, assisting directly with autopsies carried out by himself and his assistants at the university, where he would start by laying out the known facts of each case 
then hand out charts detailing each and every procedure they were to carry out in order to arrive at a conclusion and a cause of death, along with method of killing and other details. For his purposes, he built a world-class teaching laboratory on the ground floor of the university with an electric elevator that would bring each cadaver up to be worked on. On the floor above, La Sassanier amassed a collection of weapons, stains, teeth, skulls, bones, vials of poisons and microscope slides filled with blood, hair, pus and sperm. It was all displayed to serve as an exhaustive reference base for studying and solving crime. During the time that he worked at the university, Lassasagne went on to become one of the founding members and editor of the Journal for the Archives of Criminal Anthropology, the preeminent journal in criminology for its day. It published papers on philosophy, psychology, pioneering forensic techniques and chemistry. Among the papers that Lassasagne either published, worked on directly or was involved with indirectly were cutting-edge techniques such as the study of blood spatter and the meanings behind the various stains they left behind, identification through chemistry of blood, vomit and semen, stages of body putrefaction and the identification of ballistics, where Lassasagne himself pioneered the techniques used to match a bullet with a unique firearm through rifling marks. In his work outside of the university, Lassasagne was often called in by external authorities to help in uncovering details of cold cases or cases that were flummoxing the police. In one of his most famous cases, he exhumed the body of a victim four months after their death and carried out an autopsy using the techniques that he and his colleagues were pioneering in the laboratory to gain a positive identification which led to the conviction of the murders. It was through this fame that Alexandra also found himself being contacted by Fourquet in 1897 in order to help ascertain the veracity of Vachet's claims of insanity. And so it was that one of the day's leading criminal anthropologists stepped up to study the case of one of the day's most brutal murderers in order to determine whether or not he was responsible for his crime. In order to ascertain whether or not Vachet was insane, one of the first and easiest things for the group to enlist was the X-raying of his head. First and foremost, they wanted to see if any parts of the lodged bullets were resting on any nerve endings. The X-rays promptly came back as negative, concluding that the pieces of shrapnel did nothing but cause a grotesque wound. Vachet's story quickly evolved. Not only had the rabid dog bite turned his blood to poison, but he now blamed the bitterness of a painful operation on his testicles after his bout of venereal disease and the unfortunate events, as he delicately put, of his shooting Louise and himself in the face. And finally, he had his bad memories from his treatment at Dole Asylum. During the downtime between meetings with La Sassagne, Vachet wrote incessantly to family, friends, Louise, his victims, would-be victims, and even to himself. On all of the letters, he wrote his return address as Jerusalem. Whilst his behaviour was undeniably strange, Lassasagne was not buying Vasha's insanity plea for a second. The real alienated do not act this way, he wrote in his journal. In fact, Lassasagne was quite aware that Vasha was methodically piecing together an insanity plea from the moment he was transferred to Belay by the request of Fourquet, and he held a deep suspicion that Vasha was calculating each and every step. Using all of his experience in forensic medicine, Lassasagne went back to each murder and meticulously pieced together all of the facts of each crime scene. 
He pulled together every last detail from the autopsies to the blood stains on the ground, to each and every wound on the bodies, and created a detailed modus operandi for Vache. He concluded that every murder was calculated and planned, marking out specifically that Vache always hid the bodies, dragging them out of the pools of blood that they had sat in, and that they always took place in opportune moments off the main pathways. The crimes, he also noted, were always on people that he could easily steal away and overpower. This, he argued, proved without question that the rages that Vache alluded to were nothing more than a fiction. Vache was perfectly lucid throughout each attack, and he was nothing more than a vicious, brutal killer. From time to time, Vache forgets his amateur dramatics and the role he is playing, and he spontaneously makes quite sensible statements and comes out with quite clever replies or with a crafty smile parrying arguments directed against him and avoids leading questions. Often, when he feels himself being drawn away from the position he has consistently determined to take, Vache will remain cautiously silent or make sporadic, deliberately unreasonable remarks behind which he takes shelter. We have seen that he knows how to organise his thoughts towards simulating delirium, disguising or blocking his confession and his insistence on being declared not responsible during his wandering life. All this is too adept to be coming from an insane person. In conclusion, Nassasanye submitted his final report to the magistrate, stating that Vache had temporary attacks of melancholic delirium with ideas of persecution and suicide, but that his acts of insanity were nothing more than just acts. He should be considered responsible and his responsibility is in no way attenuated by any preceding psychological troubles. The trial of Joseph Vache for the murder of Victor Portalier was scheduled to begin at 8.40am on the morning of the 26th of October 1898 in the town of Bourges-en-Brasse, 60 miles to the north of Lyon, and Vache, despite all his attempts, would have to stand as a sane man, shouldering all the responsibility of the verdict. On the eve of the trial, the town of Bourges-en-Bresse saw a swarm of reporters from across France. As night fell on the town, there was not a single rented room left vacant. The affair caused a huge stir and as expected, the courtroom was packed to the rafters. As Vache was brought in, he yelled to the unlooking crowd, Glory to Jesus, long live Joan of Arc, to the grand martyr of the times, and glory to the grand saviour. This was all much to the amusement of all. His whole conduct in court was of the most eccentric description. His appearance is repulsive. Aged about 30, he has a flat nose, jet black hair and a horrible squint. He wears a brown frieze suit and a rabbit skin cap. The judge laid out the tight schedule for the hearing, allowing for the first day to be entirely filled with Vache's testimony. The second day would see the 49 scheduled witnesses take the stand and the third and final day would be reserved for the medical evidence against the case for Vache's insanity plea. After the defence fired their first shots, attempting to get Vache's evaluation thrown out and repeated within a hospital environment, which the judge promptly denied, Vache stood up to give his testimony. Yes, I killed and then soiled and mutilated the cadavers, but the guilty ones, the only guilty ones, are the doctors from the same Robert Asylum, who instead of keeping me locked up, let me go running into the countryside. He went on to tell the court of how he was an instrument of God, 
and his crimes a method to show up the evils of the French asylums. Later he compared himself to Joan of Arc, who he said was a great martyr like me. At the end of the third day, the defence's closing statement went on for over three hours. It was all to be in vain for Vachet, however, as the jury were out for only 15 minutes before returning a verdict of guilty to the premeditated murder of Victor Portalier. The judge handed down a sentence of death, condemning Vachet to the guillotine, scheduled on the 31st of December at 7am. The event commanded a crowd of over 3,500 spectators, and at precisely 7.03am, the steel blade severed Vachet's head from his body, putting an end to the life of the French Ripper. Vachet's crimes highlighted both the isolation and insecurities of travelling the roads and highways between French rural towns, as well as the incredible level of ignorance that permeated through the fragmented rural French policing system. Whilst he was eventually convicted for just a single murder and confessed to only 11, many suggest that his crimes were carried out on upwards of 20 victims. Fourquet himself believed at the time that the number was around 27 to 29, but with almost 90 unsolved cases, many of which matched Vachet's MO and Vachet's incredible mileage, the number could outweigh any conservative estimate by some margin. After his beheading, Vachet's brain was promptly studied, dissected, and cast in plaster by the forensic criminologist in Lassasagne's laboratory in order to study how a man could have been led to lead such a horrific life. The cast of Vachet's brain still sits in the Faculty of Medicine in Paris, though it has long past its usefulness. It serves as a reminder of the crimes of Joseph Vachet that have often fallen into the shadows of history. The life and crimes of Joseph Vachet. What a terrible man. It's been a long time since we've had someone so incredibly deplorable on the podcast, I think. But it's an interesting story, and I think it's one that's kind of overshadowed a little bit now, because probably because it's it's not the mystery that other sort of serial crimes, serial killers and such have been, like like Jack the Ripper, for example, which was, you know, only 10 years previous. So I, I, I think... Probably, you know, the fact that he was arrested and guillotined in the end probably has led, led his story to kind of slip away a little bit. Anyway, we'll be back after these short advert breaks. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app. And if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. 
Some of my favourite books on there today are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, You gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Right, yeah, so Joseph Vache, I mean, what a psychopath. I'm not sure there's much else to say apart from what an absolute psychopath. I found it interesting how, from a very small age, he was an absolute psychopath. And this has been chalked up to a lot of different reasons. I I was reading a few French articles, um, and they were proper academic papers, that actually suggested like the death of his twin might have had something to do with it. I'm not sure I really buy that. I I can't see how an eight-month-old twin dying on a piece of bread would have had much to do with it. But... But who knows? Obviously, the the rabid dog came into it, like Vache said, um, but but not really. I think most people now assume that it, it had more to do with the fact that he was probably savagely unwell and and f- tossed out into the countryside, really. And and of course, it, it is only because of the fragmented nature of the police that even allowed him to get away with it for so long. But I mean, how mad is that? I mean, all along, I was going through his story and I was plotting it plotting his path and stuff and um it was really apparent that he only had to go like a handful of miles up the road and he would be completely out of suspicion and and even if those people knew that something bad had happened in the neighboring village they they just wouldn't put two and two together almost but but what really shocked me was when he got imprisoned for a month and the the police that imprisoned him didn't even think to check that he might have been the man that was hunted just in the neighbouring village and, and how no one even heard that, you know, via rumour or something in these small isolated communities, 
that this man had been jailed and, you know, he had scars and looked a bit like the man that people had seen in the other village. It was mad how isolated everything was and how that led him to get away scot-free for so many years just by walking up the road. That by itself is quite incredible, just the amount of miles he, he walked. I've, he covered so much ground and, and that kind of leads to the most worrying thing about all of this is... So he confessed to 11 murders, but he's not stupid and he was only confessing to the murders that he knew that he was busted for. It's quite clear that he killed many more than that. I found one French blog that actually had detailed every single murder that he believed, and that was in the in the twenties. and And they all seemed credible to me because they all shared very very similar reports um, in terms of like wounds and stuff like that. I I, I think probably he killed it easily into the thirties, possibly even the forties, because if you think. There were 88 crimes that, that were unaccounted for. Now, probably not all 88 of those were Vachet, right? But how many crimes were there that weren't reported as well and just were turned into, like, missing people? Because Fouquet only got the crimes that were unsolved and violent. But if they were, like, unsolved missing people, they wouldn't have been categorised as violent, so they probably wouldn't have been sent to Fouquet, which means there's probably more than 88. Or, you know, much more than 88, if you think about it. 88's not really a, a lot for the amount of years that he was active. So there's probably, I, I mean, who knows? It's, it, it must, it's impossible to really estimate how many he, he could have killed. But, I mean, it could be like easily into like the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know. It's madness. And I, I, I think it probably is not far from that number. I'm not sure I'd go that high, but, you know, only because... That seems unbelievable. It's not because I don't think he couldn't have done it. I think he definitely could have done it. I think he was an absolute madman. But it just seems mad that it could be that high, right? It's uh, it's quite insane. It was, say, it was quite a brutal story. So, um, yeah, I hope it didn't come across as too gratuitous. I, I, I did try and kind of give the details of the crimes that I had details for, but without being sort of overly graphic. Because... One of the issues I had with this is a lot of people didn't want to be overly graphic when they write about this, which is fine, but you need to know the details as well, right? If you want to write about this case, you you kind of need to know the details of the bodies and such. And, and, and that might not be a pleasant, might not make pleasant reading, but I found that a lot of the writing anyway on this was people would sort of coast over the murders a little bit too easily. So I tried to do something similar where I tried to kind of coast over the murders a little bit, give a little bit of background on the people that I had the background for, but but at the same time give you the details of each one. because So there's a really good book about this, and I really recommend you read it if you're interested in this story, um, and it's by Douglas Starr. It's called The Killer of Little Shepherds, A True Crime Story and the Birth of Forensic Science. And it's really good. It's, it's a really great book. It was actually bought for me by... Um, one of our listeners. So thanks very much for that because it was bought off my Amazon wish list. So thank you very much. That was Alison. Thanks very much, Alison. Um, but yeah, I, I recommend reading it. But what I will say is it's, it's a cracking sort of true crime book with a really kind of good page turning kind of narrative. And it, and it has a really good amount of background detail on La Sassanie and, and, and the, the, the forensics of the time. 
in fact, I would say that's its real strong point is going into the La Sassagne story. But, but what it really doesn't do very well is document the actual murders and the crimes. And I'm not, like I say, I'm not sure if that's because realistically, why document the 11 when there's so many more probably? And so, you know, you're only, even if you document that 11 very well, I suppose you're still only really doing half a job. So I'm not sure if that's why he chose to do that. I suspect it was more because he wanted to keep it palatable for a wider audience. And and, and I say that's the book's real big problem. So I, I definitely recommend reading it if you're interested in this, um, especially if you're interested in Lassa Sanye's background story. But 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 I will give it a warning that if you if you want like if you're the sort if a bit like me really if you're a bit like me and you like sort of really dry details. You, you don't get that in this book. Quite often, you, you'll be reading it and he'll breeze over a murder in like less than a sentence. Um, it'll just be like, oh, there's another body. Bang. Next. Let's talk about Lassitania again. Or, you know, let's talk about this. So it, it, it breezes over the murders quite a lot. And and so when I made this episode, of Sour, I knew that it was going to be a little bit testy. So I, I tried to be not gratuitous but at the same time I wanted to do more than that book and 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 actually kind of explain the murders because I think you, it's kind of important to the story gross as they may have been but anyway that was that I say um there's not much else to talk about other than the fact that I mean I'm sure that he was an absolute psychopath I do think perhaps the, the one bit of debate in this is is whether or not it was fair to try him as a sane person, and that gets, I suppose, quite a bit difficult. I, I would say it wasn't. I think they stitched him up. I think he probably was insane, and I think if his crimes hadn't have been so heinous and so hyped up in the press and stuff, I think he probably would have been tried insane. That said, I, I don't think it, that it was the wrong outcome. I think, you know, just guillotine the man. Like, he wasn't getting any better. He was a horrible human being. You know, that's pretty extreme, I guess. But I, I, I just think, you know, at that time they were guillotining murderers and if he'd have got away with not being guillotined, I think that wouldn't have been the, the right outcome. I think if they'd have just put him in an asylum for a few years and then released him, A, I think that would have led to more crimes being you know, more murders. And B, I just think he was a really heinous, violent, horrific man. But yeah, I mean, it, it is a debate where I've had to say, I, I do think that Fourquet was worried about his career. Lassasania himself went on to say that he believed that he got it correct and that he, and he said that he acted on good faith. But even he sort of displayed doubts on his on his final conclusions on Vache's insanity. So that that says quite a bit. I, I think that he was pretty out there. I mean, I think when you look at the facts of it, I think he was having like auditory hallucinations, if not visual hallucinations. He was definitely having auditory hallucinations. I think, you know, he was clearly unwell. It is what it is. But it is, a, it is an area of debate, I guess, that, that, that could be had, you know, whether or not they got it right and whether or not they trying him as a sane man was was a fair recourse or whatever. Um, I think if they hadn't, people would have gone 
like mad. I think they would have gone spare because this was a huge brouhaha in the press and, and stuff. It was a massive event in the time and, you know, all across France, people were kind of expecting justice to be done. I think if they just put him in an asylum, I think it would have been a huge uproar um, and, and massively controversial. And I think he would eventually have been released and what, what, what's going to happen then? He's only, I mean, he, I, I'm fairly sure he was only going to go on to kill more people if he didn't get lynched. Um, so that's that, I guess. But anyway, so I, I do think that's an interesting area of debate and that's something we'll probably get into on the live streams uh, at the end of the month if you're interested in coming along to that. Um, anyway, I'm going to leave it there because this, this episode must be huge. I, I, I don't actually know how long it is now, but it's, it's going to be massive. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll leave that there. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch, contact at darkhistories.com is my email. Uh, you can get in touch via Facebook, Instagram and Twitter also. We're Dark Histories pretty much everywhere. Um, look for the butterfly. Um, you can also just go to darkhistories.com. You'll find everything there, all the links, everything. And that's to find us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, support the podcast on Patreon and in other ways. Um, so, yeah, and also the merch shop and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's that. Thanks very much for listening. Um, I'm I'm going to bail out as fast as I can. Normally at this point, I generally tend to waffle. I'm going to try and stop that. So stop waffling, Ben. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you very soon. I hope you're well for the next couple of weeks and I'll see you then. Cheers. Thanks very much. Sleep tight.